Contra is friction. Contra is Contra is nuanced. Contra, Contra is, is transgressive. Good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture. Welcome to Contra, the podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. This show is about the politics of accessible and critical design, broadly conceived, and how accessibility can be more than just functional or assistive. It can also be conceptual, artful, and world-changing. I'm your host, Amy Hamrai. I'm a professor at Vanderbilt University, a designer and design researcher, and the director of the Critical Design Lab, a multi-institution collaborative focused on disability, technology, and critical theory. Members of the lab collaborate on a number of projects focused on hacking ableism, speaking back to inaccessible public infrastructures, and redesigning the methods of participatory design, all using a disability culture framework. This podcast provides a window into the kinds of discussions that we have within the lab, as well as the conversations that we're hoping to put into motion. So in coming episodes, you'll also hear from myself and the other designers and researchers in the lab, and we encourage you to get in touch with us via our website, www.mapping-access.com, or on Twitter at CriticalDesignL. In this episode, I speak with Black feminist disability activists and scholars, Dr. Moya Bailey and Velissa Thompson, LMSW. Moya is an assistant professor at Northeastern University and really a leader in the fields of Black women's health politics and the digital humanities. We went to graduate school together at Emory University, and it really is just such a joy and honor to get to talk to her for the podcast. Velissa is a disability activist and licensed social worker who created the hashtag disability white and also is the director of Ramp Your Voice, a disability advocacy consultancy. And I've been following Velissa's work for a while, and I'm just so humbled to be able to talk to her and to learn from her leadership. In this episode, we discuss hashtag activism as part of a constellation of strategies used by Black women, particularly Black disabled women, to resist ableism and what Bailey has termed misogynoir. Our conversation takes us from hashtags to digital modes of social connection and community building, to the politics of blackness and disability in academia, and finally to the racialization of digital products themselves. We end by discussing what it would take to design a better world. Here's the interview. Welcome, (laughs) Moya and Velissa. It's so wonderful to have you both on the podcast. And um, I'm excited to also be able to hear the two of you in conversation. Um, I, I was thinking that it would be really amazing to have the two of you in conversation because you're both working on this concept of hashtag activism and also really centering the experiences and knowledge of black women and black disabled women in particular. So Moya, you're writing a book about hashtag activism and Velissa just wrote this great piece for an upcoming special issue of the journal Catalyst, which is gonna be on crypt techno science and how disabled people are using technology for activism. So, I just thought this would be a really great conversation for our audience to be able to um, learn about uh, some of the ways that disability is intersecting with both these methods of activism and in particular the activism of black disabled women. So maybe to get us started, we could just talk about this question of what is hashtag activism? What are some of its defining characteristics? What are people doing with it? I, I can start. Uh, this is Moya, and I think one of the things that I think about when I think of hashtag activism is people taking the means of social media like into their own and taking it uh, into their own like way to create what it is that they want and need. So 
one of the things that um, hashtags have been really instrumental in doing is giving people access to a conversation they wouldn't otherwise have. And hashtags were actually a technology that someone brought to Twitter from early listserv conversations. So somebody who was like familiar with that history decided, oh, maybe this is a good way to organize the conversations that we have on Twitter. And then we've seen it branch and grow into people using hashtags in really big ways. So just recently, uh, to date um, our podcast a little bit, uh, people have been tweeting about the Surviving R. Kelly series that's been on Lifetime. And so you can see the hashtag Surviving R. Kelly and also the hashtag Mute R. Kelly, which uh, references an organizing effort by Black women to get um, radio stations to stop playing R. Kelly's music. And that action actually grew into a lot of different actions. Uh, And so both of those hashtags have been circulating pretty widely for the last couple of days while the series was um, shown. And I think that's a really good example of how Black women in particular have been using hashtags to create change. So one of the things that Mute R. Kelly has successfully done was to get um, Tom Joyner, who is a show, a radio producer and on-air host for um, a very popular Black early morning uh, radio program to stop playing R. Kelly. And so that's one of the ways that people see um, hashtags uh, being used as a form of activism to actually get uh, people to change their behavior and do something different. Melissa, do you have any other thoughts about uh, hashtag activism, kind of what it is, what it does, maybe in disability communities also? I think that for me, the disability community has been very... Um, purposeful and using hashtags to to not only gain attention to the issues that matters to us, but also um, connect with each other. Um, there's a great hashtag um, called Lupus Chat. I'm um, Lupus Chat that goes on su- on Sundays where the same people talk about you know being um, dealing with chronic illness, dealing with lupus, dealing with all these things that matter to them with um, different themes each week that the chat is here. There's also a Spoonie chat that a um, Black Femi has created where they talk about you know being Spoonies, having chronic illness, what is that um, particular journey like for them. Um, I have my own hashtag, Disability Too White, that'll be three this year, that started a conversation about the erasure exclusion of disabled people of color within and outside disability spaces. There's also the hashtag Disabled and Cute, which is coming up on two years um, next month, created by Kia Brown, who um, is about you know empowerment when it comes to our beauty, disabled people finding themselves cute, finding themselves um, um, beauty in their own way, in a way that we don't really deem ourselves because of the way that society does not view disabled bodies as having beauty, as having desirability, attractability, and so forth. And the way that we have used hashtag, particularly as disabled um, Black femmes and women, has been very powerful to start um, programmative conversations to really gain that community support and also have empowered ourselves individually. Um, I know that with Kia's hashtag, you know, that has been a very powerful tool for her to really feel a oneness with her black disabled body. And I think that's been a very, um, for me, a very powerful thing to see that hashtag be in existence and still be used today, you know, by people who take a cute picture of themselves. They're like, oh yeah, I'm having a good day today. You know, uh, despite maybe having a flare up or despite, despite, you know, your body not really being the best, but you're still finding something good to say about yourself. You know, so I really feel that hashtags for our community is about connecting with each other, is about empowering each other, and about raising that awareness on the issues that are important individually as well as collectively. 
Yeah, I love that you're pointing out all these different uses for hashtags, bringing people together, providing opportunities to for people to show themselves to the world and to connect to other people around that kind of like display and affirmation. And it reminds me of um, a couple pieces that Moya, you have written about how black trans women use hashtags. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts about connections there. Sure. Yeah. And I just want to echo what Felissa is saying about how hashtags are a place for people to build community and that it's something that we really are fortunate to have in this moment that people are able to get together in ways that they couldn't before. And so, um, you know, and when we're thinking about uh, Black trans women, and their ability to connect to one another, um, hashtags have been really important in, in helping people find community. And so one of those hashtags is um, hashtag girls like us, which was created by Janet Mock. And that hash, hashtag has actually inspired and led to um, a lot of really good uh, cultural media. And it does similar work to the hashtags that Melissa mentioned. So people are able to use that hashtag to uh, post um, images of themselves, like just doing regular things. And also it was an opportunity for different people to meet. Uh, I believe that the web series Herstory, which features Jen Richards and Angelica Ross was created partially because those two met through using Janet Mock's hashtag and they became roommates when they lived in the same city and then it inspired them to create the web series. So I think that's one of the really beautiful and powerful things about the way um, people who are multiply marginalized are able to use hashtags to uh, enable a kind of community that is very hard to do in just um, the world at large. You might be the only you know, trans woman or disabled person near you, but these hashtags can bring you together and the internet can bring you together in ways that you couldn't have uh, been able to do, you know, just a few decades ago. Yeah, that's so interesting. It reminds me of a conversation I was having with Alice Wong, who runs the Disability Visibility Project. There's also an episode with her. Um, about how Twitter makes it possible for people to engage in disability activism from their homes and their beds, and that that changes who we think of as a disability activist. And, Melissa, you wrote about this as well in your piece in Catalyst, um, that there's, uh, there's something about being able to plug into a conversation via hashtags through the interface of a computer that kind of takes away some of the spatial constraints that are on people um, and may create other kinds of constraints because technology isn't always accessible. Um, right. But it does seem like a really important uh, way of addressing kind of how inaccessible protests can be and other things that we think of as kind of quote unquote normal activism, like being in the streets, but that's not available or even preferable or strategic for everyone. Right, right. And I think that, you know, being online, you know, it gives you this ability to do so many things. You know, you can, you know, be on Twitter and tweet, you know, about the issues that you care about. You can start a vlog, start a blog, you can, you know, free, freelance and write. You know, you can make little videos here and there to talk about issues that matter to you. And I think that particularly technology and hashtag could just open the door wide open. And for me, being a disabled activist who I still feel like I'm still young in the game in a way, but, you know, just really getting us to see each other, particularly people of color, since disability history is very whitewashed. And I feel that now disabled people of color especially cannot be ignored because we're using these tools and we're making our particular stories heard. There's not just white, cis, um, disabled men stories who are being heard anymore. It's all of us now and we all have an equal playing field 
you know, and I feel that technology allows that to really occur so that we are rewriting, you know, disability history so that it includes us. Because I know that when I started uh, Rep Your Voice in 2013, you know, many of us were just starting around that time, you know, and connecting with each other. So it's been very nice six years later to have this community, particularly of Black disabled women and femmes, um, you know, in a space to where we're not just one or two just trying to find each other. You know, we have a robust community now and it's a growing community and we represent many disabilities, many type of backgrounds. And one of the things that I enjoy is meeting activists abroad um, of the diaspora, um, from Africa, from the Caribbean, um, from the UK, who are doing tremendous work in their uh, respective homelands and learning what they're doing and connecting with them because a lot of for a lot of those um, activists they're the pioneers in their own spaces. So I think that these hashtags, technology especially, you know, is allowing us to connect beyond our borders so that we can learn from each other, support each other, and and for me that's very important for the us of the diaspora to do that because we know of the struggles of when you're multiply marginalized, what it's like to be erased from your racial identity to your disability identity, to your queer identity, to all of the identities that make you, that make who you are. And to be able to find people that can relate to that is just so enriching. And it gives you the ability to see that you're not alone. And you do have that community that's within your immediate space, but also outside of that. So I think that for me, just to see the color of disability advocacy, you know, be enriched and to see um, new generations, particularly millennials and Gen Xers really come together like that is very important. And it does, like you were saying, Amy, it does erase um, those those barriers to activism because we do think of activism as people going out in the street. And that type of activism is important and it definitely has a place. But for disabled people, like for me, I wouldn't feel safe going out there because I have a certain disability where I could really get hurt if I was to go out on the street. But I can still have my voice heard by being on Twitter, by writing a blog, by writing an article. And that's just as important work for the movement as being out there in the street. And I really think that, um, particularly with with disability activism, we really see how much power that has. Like with the fight for the ADA happened two years ago, it was disabled activists both putting their bodies on the line physically, but also discussing their stories online about safe Medicaid and being a, having a pre-existing condition. All those things mattered during that time. And online activism works. So I really feel that, you know, as we shift our thinking about the power activism and what it looks like. I think online activism has really made a um, made a movement and made a dent into what activism is and have made a permanent stay in that. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, I, I something I was thinking about while you were speaking, and also with Moya when you were speaking. Something I noticed is that um, both of you give credit to the people who create these specific hashtag campaigns or other online activist campaigns. And I think that that is a practice that is not widespread regarding Twitter in general, Um, but it strikes me as having an important social justice component and a component that's related to giving credit to who the movement leaders are. Um, so could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, I definitely learned early on that citation is political and um, who you choose to cite and who you don't cite is really important. And I think, Felissa, you actually noted something in an article that um, me and my friend Izetta did that we didn't have like a good citational practice around some of the new uh, Black feminist activists, disability activists who are like on the ground every day. And that was something that 
was in part of our article, but we didn't fight back, I guess, against the editors enough to say, like, actually, we need all of these names. <laughs> we need all of these names here. Um, and so definitely something to consider going forward. We're working on another article um, looking at the hashtag Black Girl Magic and the firestorm that happened when uh, Linda Chavers, who wrote about the hashtag in Elle magazine, said that she didn't actually think that it was a very useful hashtag because we were forgetting about Black women with disabilities specifically. She used her own chronic illness as an example of why she didn't like the hashtag. And so we were trying to think through that, like how is this hashtag useful, but also um, maybe what are the limits? And, and there are lots of disabled women who find that hashtag very helpful, who think Black Girl Magic is actually something that describes their experiences as being you know, Black disabled women. So I think for me, it's really important to name all of the people and particularly Kashawn Thompson, who's the person who created the hashtag Black Girl Magic, making sure that we are linking people to um, the way that they have created terminology that helps us uh, better understand our world and figure out what it is that we want in our world. And part of that is um, letting people know that actually all of this has an origin. You know, Black Girl Magic didn't just magically appear. It was something that Kashawn Thompson thought about and she had um, something to say about it. Similarly, Linda Chavers and the other Black women who were responding to it and find it useful and are trying to challenge it. Like we wanna make sure that everybody is in that conversation because it's important to make sure that we aren't erased from the conversations that matter to us. Yeah, and you know, and I thank you for bringing that up because I was a little nervous in kind of calling that out in a way because I had skimmed the article. People were like, oh yeah, you know, looking at it, I was just like, oh, you know, and I really, you know, thank you for mentioning that because it's so important, you know, for us when you have a piece about black feminism you know, disabled women are always erased from that conversation. You know, and when I read that, it felt like, you know, a little bit of my heart was like, okay. You know, kind of like, you know, here we are again with that. You know, and, you know, thank you for taking that accountability with that, because that means so much. You know, it means that we're seen and that our stories um, matter. And, you know, I hate to hear that you guys had that pushback, you know, but I know when you have things like that that does happen um so thank you for providing that uh, background on that um and it's funny that you was mentioning the black girls magic hashtag because a couple of years ago i did a series called black disabled girl magic you know where i highlighted some of the black disabled women that i know and the work that they're doing and um Fashana, she has such a great hashtag and for me i do see myself in that so you know so i don't feel that detachment but when I made that series, I wanted to specifically focus on disabled women and what our magic is. Because I feel that when we have these kind of blanket hashtags where we all think everybody's included, but we're really not. And I think sometimes we have that disconnectness in truly understanding who feels seen and why. And particularly for those of us who are never seen. And I just feel that, you know, taking that deeper look into those hashtags in that way, like you're doing, is so important so that we all can see why we're, uh, why we are part of that conversation, or even just discuss why we feel like we're not. And I think that having that open, like, dialogue to where people can have such a good um, discussion on why people don't be seen and the history of that, because there's a history as to why people don't see themselves. You know, particularly in our community as Black people, with certain identities, you don't see 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 ourselves because we don't get to talk about ourselves. You know, or people will be like, "Oh, you know, you're not disabled. You know, you're just different." You know, and it's like, no, this has a name, and it's okay to say disabled. And we, the Black community, have a lot of work when it comes to self-identifying as disabled and and being proud of being disabled. And I know that for me, I tell the story all the time how. 
I did not understand the discipline of what's identity. And here I am as a social worker, you know, like, you know, having this type of background and not having that connection until I met other Black single women where I was like, oh, okay, this is an important identity to who I am, like my Blackness, like my womanness, and that's okay. And it's not something out of um, pity or just not something that just um, medically um, understood. So I really think that, um, you know, having a discussion about these hashtags and how people feel about them is so pivotal so that we can all celebrate what they're created to mean for us. I, I love that word created. And I've noticed, Felissa, on your Twitter profile, it actually says you're the creator of Disability Too White, which I think is really important. Um, and it goes to something, Moya, you've also written about kind of cultural production and um, being able to think about information or concepts and terms as things that um, are produced just like art or technology or anything else and um, it seems like hashtags are one of those things um, where an extraordinary amount of labor goes into producing the conversations and also into coming up with the terms that are going to be part of the hashtags in the first place that make people use them. Um, but maybe a lot of people don't think about how to design a hashtag effectively. So I wonder if we could talk about how you do that. Um, thinking about Twitter as like a site for design or engineering beyond just coding, how do you create a hashtag that people will actually use and that will have the kind of um, kind of critical meaning that you're intending for it to have? I think that for me, my hashtag just kind of popped in my head. <laughs> like it was just this conversation that um, popped up and XOJ article um, was circulated at the time about disability and beauty. And I had stumbled upon a conversation on Twitter that Alice Wong and others were having about the article and it featured white disabled women. And they were all discussing about, you know, how, yeah, this is a great article about disability and beauty, but it's very white centered. And, you know, I was just joining on the conversation and the hashtag just really popped into my mind and others started using it and it just kind of took a life on its own. And so I think sometimes you just have that eureka moment. You know, you don't really think about it. It's just sometimes it can be very passion driven that you just that split second you put it out there people connect with it and it goes and sometimes you do take um some time to brainstorm a hashtag if there's a particular purpose that you have for it you know um for that way but sometimes i think it's kind of a mix of both sometimes it's just the right timing and sometimes you just really study what is what is it that you want people to see and to pop in their head when they see that hashtag on their feed you know, so I think that for me, it's either or. My experience, it just was, you know, just half chance. And I think there's a, another piece of it, too, that, like, <clears throat> part of what makes a good hashtag is its ability to get stuck in your head. And so that means simple language. That means something that people can connect it with. And then, you know, it can it can move so there was a moment where you know hashtags might follow in a similar vein so you get like a bunch of hashtags that look like are structured similarly so I'm thinking about one we have the hashtags hashtags of people who have been murdered by the police so it's you know the person's first and last name like that's a very common hashtag frame that we know and we know what that means when we see it. Uh, but then there's also hashtags like, um, oh, what was the one uh, that started it all? Um, it wasn't, uh, I'm trying to think. So there were there were a series that came forth. Do you remember these, Felissa? It was, um, 
something for white women solidarity is for yeah solidarity is for white white women women. Mm -hmm. right but it came after another hashtag and then it came slipping your slip is showing your slip is showing yes okay that was another one kind of in that same little moment Mm -hmm. so they they had like a similar structure that i think people could recognize and see the pattern and what people were trying to do in the next iteration of the hashtag and what new things people were trying to bring to the conversation. So for me, I think that's a really important element of uh, hashtags is trying to make something that fits and connects with um, the current cultural moment and what people are thinking through and making it small enough that people can kind of hold on to it. Mm-hmm. And I do want to touch on something you had brought up, Amy, about the whole term of uh, being a creator of a hashtag. And I think it's very important for when you create these um, hashtags that you do own your body of work. And it kind of goes back to that whole citing people and to understand ownership. But people will try to <laughs> you know, surprisingly still hashtags. Like, you know, it's so ridiculous. It's not like you can't find where where the origin story of the hashtag came from. And I know that I've been very purposeful to protect my intellectual property. And I've been very purposeful of letting other, of making sure that other people know to protect theirs as well. And particularly as Black, black women and femmes, people will steal our stuff easily because they dismiss what we create. Even though they, um, you know, they understand the value, they see the value, but they don't value us as a creator. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so important when we talk about being ethical. I know as a social worker, like, I was really surprised at how much plagiarism goes on. And I'm like, you know, as a social worker, we study, you know, these things or learn how to be ethical in practice. So if I am going to discuss somebody's hashtag, I, it is my duty you know, ethically as a social worker to give that person credit, to talk about why it's impactful. So I don't really understand the disconnect people have in respecting somebody's body of work and dismissing the um, poignantness of hashtags and respecting that as a body of work as you would somebody's book or somebody's article. Um, I know that Trudy talks about that all the time in her particular work and and her experience with being um, plagiarized. And, you know, for me, Trudy is the one who taught me so many things. Trudy was one of the first Black families I saw talk about um, ableism in a way when I first started um, my activism. So to, to really hear her plight and having a fight for her own work made me conscious of what I need to do to protect my body of work when you see other people go through that. And you know, and that's another thing. So yeah, I'm going to say I'm a creator of something because it's my body of work and everybody should own their body of work, even if it is a hashtag. Don't miss that because these hashtags are being used in academia. These are hashtags are being used in articles. So don't dismiss the uh, poignance of these hashtags in the broader society, in our social um, justice spheres because they're being seen and they're being used. And you should demand that they be cited correctly. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely something that happened with me with Massage Noir. And like Trudy and I wrote about that specifically, like how, you know, when I created the term, I definitely did not think that it would take off the way that it did. And it really did because Trudy was so good about like, talking about it and writing about it on her blog and really helped it spread and helped a lot of people see it. Cause I think otherwise it kind of would have been stuck in academia. It was in my dissertation. It was in some articles that I wrote on the Crunk Feminist Collective. And so I think her lifting it up is part of why people heard about it. So when we talked about it together, part of that was to say that like, yes, I did create this term but Trudy also did labor in terms of, you know, helping other people hear about it and learn about it. That's why um, I learned about it was from Trudy when her blog was active. I was like, oh, like, what is this? Because I don't identify as a 
feminist identify as a womanist, which is due to truly work right. uh, work when it comes to talking about womanism. So I think that honestly, Trudy has really taught many of us who was coming into online activism in the mid um, middle part of this decade, you know, when her blog was active and educating us on those terms. Cause that's so, cause that really empowered many of us in learning about things that you wasn't learning about in school. If you went to, like, you know, you heard about feminism and that's it. You didn't hear about misogynoir. You didn't hear about womanism, you know? So yeah. Um, can you all tell our audience Trudy's last name and the name of her blog? Um, Trudy doesn't use um, her last name. Okay. She just goes by Trudy. Um, but her blog still exists, and it's um, Gradient Lair. She's not actually um, blogging on there, but you can still go and see all of the posts at gradientlayer.com. Okay. I'll definitely include that in the links in the show notes for anybody who wants to go and read them yeah Yeah. thank you Mm um yeah so kind of going back to misogynoir i was thinking about this relationship between kind of terms and concepts and hashtags that um sometimes twitter or hashtags are um like academics will think of that as not proper intellectual work, Um, whereas academics are constantly creating more and more precise terms for things in order to enable conversations to happen. And of course, the digital humanities have contested this treatment of um, Twitter or blogging or whatever is kind of less scholarly. Um, But it seems like many of the methods and approaches to citation and the creation of terms are similar and shared across these worlds. Um, And one thing I've been wondering about just kind of listening to you all talk about this is if someone was going to do their due diligence, for example, to find the proper creator of a hashtag, um, how would they do that? And how is it similar or different than finding the originator of a term? Um, Because with terms, at least, like someone will write an article and they'll say, I am creating this term. It is my term. You can cite it. Um, But with a hashtag, how does that work so that people can engage in those ethical citation practices? That's a really great question. And I think it's uh, different, but it's not hard. So one thing that you can do, especially when a term is new or a hashtag is new, is you can see who's the first person to post it. So if you're in you know, that first week or so when a hashtag is created and it pops, you can just go into the Twitter feed and go back and see pretty quickly who was the first person there and also whose tweet of the particular hashtag has the most retweets, et cetera. Like that can kind of give you a sense of who is responsible. And then there are other um, hashtags that have happened before where people have done some of that documentation um, in traditional print media or even digital media. So um, in terms of misogynoir, uh, which has become a hashtag, but as a term, uh, some of the earlier documentation of it was in uh, you know, online digital publications like Mike.com. And then uh, actually I think a, a undergraduate student wrote a uh, Wikipedia article about misogynoir um, for a class project. And I think that's another thing when we think about digital humanities and what work we can be doing. One of the things we can do is help people who have created hashtags by doing that digital labor of creating the Wikipedia articles about uh, some of these hashtags that have happened and making sure people know who is responsible and who's created this a uh, new frame or new uh, way of engaging in conversation that we find so useful and helpful. Mm-hmm. And I think also kind of going back to that ownership thing, like put it in your Twitter bio. Mm-hmm. I know that's why I have mine. Because usually if you see a hashtag and the person put in that bio, their profile be one of the first ones that you see if you do that search. Mm-hmm. So really owning 
you know, your own work, you know, literally in your bio, you know, really helps. If you, um, I know the Alice one, when I, when the hashtag went viral, Disability White went viral, she created a um, story, well, now debunk, uh, defunct Storify for it. So that's like a digital collection of those first tweets of the conversation that happened during the first 24 hours. So really finding that way to um, create a database, you know, you know, about it. Or if it goes viral and you get interviewed, that's usually one of the ways where that gets solidified as to who the creator is. Um, I know that's happened with mine particularly. So finding ways to create that digital footprint um, is really helpful. Even if you may, even if it's just go viral within your own community, having somebody write about it, having somebody interview you about it, you know, and having that title in the headlining piece of their podcast or their article, that's one way to take ownership that I've seen people find. I know that's worked for me so that people can't lay claim or Columbus your body of work, you know, as their own. Yeah. Yeah. Those are really helpful tips. And I'm thinking about how to teach students how to create this documentation um, or also how to have conversations with scholars about it. Um, like I kind of wish there was an archive or a Google Docs spreadsheet or something that kept track of who who the originators and creators of different hashtags are um, because sometimes when they get too big, it's like impossible to go back. Right. You know, and That's if people true. aren't having the conversation about authorship, um, it's probably it's not going to be lost, but it's harder for like a person who's just entering into the middle of the conversation to even if they want to to be able to know who to cite, um, or even to think to cite because I still think a lot of people don't think to do that. So. Right. That's definitely something that with our hashtag activism book is that we want to create an online database that does exactly that. So that's the next piece. The book is done, but we want to kind of do the, the next piece, which is how do we make sure that we credit all of the hashtags that people have made in the spirit? And then kind of what was the moment that really pushed that hashtag to come into to come into being mm, that's great um when is your book coming out moya um hopefully it should be out um by the end of the year so um we just got our edits back and um we are going to be responding to those very quickly and then hopefully we'll get um some proofs um in the next couple of months so we'll see that's, that's exciting, exciting. Yeah, thank you. Um, and do you have a co-author? You said we. Yes, I have two co-authors. So um, Sarah Jackson and Brooke Foucault-Wells, uh, who are professors also at Northeastern University. Um, awesome. Uh, do you all have any questions for each other? Any kind of burning things that you want to ask each other or talk about? Yes, I have a question. Uh, This is a question that I've been thinking about uh, and just trying to think through kind of what the responsibility is of digital humanities and academics to uh, folks who are using uh, hashtag activism in their life. Uh, Kind of what do you want academics to consider uh, what do you need academics to do better than they're doing? That's, I, I really want academics to, when it comes to disability, really respect the work that disabled people are doing that's outside of academia. Um, understanding that there are many uh, systemic structural barriers that prevent many of us from getting the level of education that we deserve, um, particularly those of us who desire to go to higher ed and even, you know, K through 12, you know, just keeping it, you know, real through the whole um, institution, education institution. But I really want 
academics to really respect disabled people and the work that we do. Um, and that starts with their students, um, really addressing the ableism that is really deeply rooted in um, academia, as well as the racism that can go hand in hand for disabled people of color. Um, for me, I think that's the biggest thing, uh, respecting the work that we do by citing us, um, not dismissing online activism as just angry people or just not really worth being cited, um, not equipping their students to cite and learning how to do that uh, fully. Um, I think those have been my some of my biggest complaints. And also, I'll come back to this one point because <laughs> I really want to make sure I word it correctly. But um, and they just really, I want academics to learn how to engage, and it's not just what to say with people, but engage their bodies of work in a way that breaks it down for everybody. And if you want to reach those communities on those quote unquote fringes, you need to talk in the lamest terms. And I and for me, as somebody who you know has the quote unquote education, has a master's degree, state board license, I, I can understand this stuff. But somebody who has like a sixth grade education would not. Um, language is very important. I know that there is a time and place to use you know, um, scholarly language, but also if you want your body of work to be relatable and to be used outside of the field, learning how to make that accessible. It's about accessibility and doing a better job at that. There's a lot of academics who are not disabled that take up space. And you need to understand that you're taking up space within a identity that is already ignored. You have a privilege when you have that PhD, that EDD, or whatever letters that come after your name or before your name, you are already looked at as an authority compared to somebody who's not, who don't have that same privilege. And when you infiltrate a space where you don't identify, where you don't have any connections to it, and you are looked upon as an expert, that is very frustrating for those of us who live with these identities, who are the true experts. And I want academics who are not disabled, who are in disability spaces to understand that you have a responsibility to uplift your disabled colleagues in your particular spaces. You have, even if you're not in disability studies, you know, or if you, you know, somehow touch on disability in your work, understanding that you have disabled colleagues who are not getting the same opportunities that you are. And to understand that and to step aside and, and build someone else up and support somebody else's work, you know, in your spaces. Because academia is hard. A lot of people don't self-identify disabled with the academia spaces. You know, that's, that's real, you know, because there are consequences, particularly if you're trying to get tenure. So, um, I really want academics to understand how ableism functions within academia. And if you are a not disabled academic talking about disability, how your voice is viewed over others and what you need to do better and be accountable for. Yeah, I want to just build on that. I mean, I think there's something so important about what you said about how people identify and kind of the choices people make about identification. And part of the article that we've mentioned is the article I wrote with Isetta Mobley. Um, we were talking about kind of why Black people in particular might be reluctant to identify as disabled. And uh, one of the things I shared in the article was that in my family, um, there's a lot of people who are disabled, but they don't identify as disabled. So like there's a way that um, the stigma attached to the identity is still really hard. And even for, you know, people who are in the academy and people who do disability studies work, it's still a, like another level to kind of claim 
disability as an identity. And then on the flip side, I also have like, you know, mixed feelings because I have students who, white students in particular, who are very comfortable identifying as disabled and then sometimes use it to not have to deal with or address racism that happens or comes up in the classroom. So like, I think there's some way that we've got to figure out how to deal with this better. Like, how do we talk about uh, the way that our different identities intersect and what does it mean to be visibly disabled also um, versus people who have invisible disabilities as well, particularly in the academy, which comes up, I think, a lot, right? Because so much of the ableism of the academy is forwarding people who the academy doesn't think are disabled, right? Or who are able to um, pass as able-bodied enough um, that the university doesn't um, mess with you as much, maybe, I don't know. But I think that this question of accessibility is so important and kind of why I think our, we have to be clear about what our goals are. You know, is our goal to make disability studies, you know, a really important field in the academy? Or is our goal to like actually help disabled people and actually change the conversation um, that's happening in the world and change the way that disabled people are able to live. Because for me, I think there are a lot of conversations that happen in the academy that aren't actually useful to a lot of people for exactly what you named, Felissa, that they're inaccessible and they always sort of end up being about, I don't know, refining the conversation of academic speak, which is so inaccessible to so many people. Right. Like, what does it mean to bring this conversation to a new space and to a new place? Mm -hmm. And I think you bring up a good point about who identifies and who's comfortable with identifying within academia and understanding that privilege as well. And understanding, holding white disabled people accountable and knowing that they're disability doesn't nullify their whiteness, which is what I am infamous to saying, because it doesn't. And to understand that you can be both privileged and oppressed at the same time. And I think that white people especially don't get that because they don't have to, while we as disabled people of color have to. And if you are of color and disabled in academia, you have a much bigger battle you know, much bigger battle hill to climb. And I don't think we give enough space for this particular group of academia to really safely discuss their um, their own stories. Felissa, uh, your, your comment also makes me think about to the digital and the digital as a place where, you know, we talk about the what it enables us to do, that the, that it really helps us uh, create so much online and have conversations and make connections. But then the actual digital infrastructure ends up disabling a lot of people of color, you know? So I think about often, you know, the minerals that power our machines are like harvested by like black kids in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Like it's their labor that extracts the minerals that powers our smart devices. Right. And then they get disabled in the process or um, you know, the people who make the Mac pro products in China, like it's the labor that's disproportionately women's labor that is creating these machines. And then it ends up to all kinds of disabling effects in their lives because of the you know, problematic working conditions by which they're able to create um, the machines that we rely on. And so for me, I, I, I want digital humanities and I want the academy to also take that up as well. Mm -hmm. You know, how does our own investment in the digital actually create this other stuff that gets invisibilized or doesn't get to be a topic of conversation too. Right. right, no, I think that's an excellent, excellent point. 
Um, so I guess that brings me to a, a kind of concluding question, um, bringing us back to the idea of design is uh, how, what would it take to design a better world? White and non-Black people, when Black issues come up, you need to be listening and you need to be paying attention to how you can be a better co-conspirator for certain things, um, how you can assist in people's efforts um, in uh, spreading their knowledge, spreading their body of their work, supporting, financially supporting what they do. Um, it's really taking more accountability because there are many of us doing this work for nothing. So being very mindful of how you absorb and digest information and how are you helping creators of hashtags, of bodies of work that you consume. Um, being very conscious of that. Um, and I challenge, you know, white and non-black people of color especially to do that. Um, so just being very conscious of your consumerism of people's body of work and how do you do so ethically? You know, how do you cite people? How do you give credit? How do you boost somebody's work? Even if you cannot make a financial contribution, retweeting, sharing, connecting somebody with the opportunity, with somebody you know, all those things are free. You know, and just making more effort to support the work of particularly Black, black women and femmies and breaking that down to Black disabled women and femmies. Um, because it is Black women and femmies who are when who have always led the revolution within our communities, um, no matter whether it's uh, disabled communities, queer communities, civil rights movement, it is always the Black women and femmes who are putting in their time, literally at times putting their very bodies on the line to get us all free. Wonderful, thank you. And Melissa, do you have a Patreon or something else like that that our audience can know about to compensate you for your labor? Yes, I do. I started one in July and I host a mini podcast on there as well as write two long form pieces and a top five list. Um, and one of those top and one of the things I do with my top five list is I support a black a black woman or femi on Patreon. So that's my way of giving black back to black women, paying black women for their own body and labor. So I pick a black creator each month to support. So that's me putting my money where my mouth is, you know, in a way, because, you know, supporting, you know, black women and femis is a priority for me. Thank you for telling us about that and also for modeling that support. Thank you. I'll uh, add that uh, I'm part of a Black feminist giving circle called SUSU, and uh, we give money to Black feminist organizations, um, whatever we raise. We all contribute a little bit, and then we review the applications, and we have it very low stakes because so many granting opportunities want you to, you know, write all of the things that you've ever done and all of this documentation to prove that you're deserving, but uh, we kind of trust the people who are uh, our recipients of these grants and just trust that they're going to do what they said they're going to do. So uh, I think that's another way to kind of shift this world that is very, um, I don't know, materialistic and wanting people to produce certain things that that uh, they feel are valuable. And in that regard, I think one of the challenges or things that I imagine would make design different was if we weren't designing for consumerism, if we were designing actually for, um, you know, human life, if we value people in a different way, which we don't, you know, it's all about servicing and even the way we think about disability and ableism is built on our ideas about work and like what people should be doing and that you need to work for a living. I think so much would shift if we just stopped 
thinking about if our world wasn't structured around, you know, a five day work week and this idea that you need a salary to survive, to make the things that you need to live. If we just assumed and valued all life just inherently, I think we'd have a very different world. And unfortunately, those aren't the kind of conversations we have enough of in academia or in the rest of the world. It's not like we have the time to really go to really go there. But that's what I feel like, uh, you know, radical disability justice brings for me, you know, it questions everything, you know, like, do we want to make work more accessible? Or do we want to get rid of work altogether? I don't know. No, um, no, that's great. Because in the disability space, we talk about the value of work and how some of us cannot work and feeling devalued because of not being able to contribute in a capitalist society. So understanding right. how many of us may want to work, but there are obstacles, whether it's due to our disability, whether there's uh, systemic obstacles such as government benefits, can't earn too much or you lose your benefits, people have to decide, do I work or do I get a little bit of money but be in poverty? You know, having those understandings of how capitalism really uh, disable people even more. So many of other podcast episodes are picking up on this theme that a lot of things that are designed for disabled people, and I use that word for really intentionally, um, mm -hmm. often by non-disabled people, um, are designed to make disabled people more productive. And that's what access looks like for certain people, um, certain design practices. And um, it seems like part of what hashtag activism and these various forms of labor that you all have been talking about on the internet, redistribution, Patreon, like what a revolutionary thing that you can pay someone for their intellectual labor um, outside wow. of a kind of academic salary sort of framework um, is that it's getting us to think about labor rather than just productivity. Um, and recognizing that work gets done and it takes many forms and it um, feels different for different bodies and um, has different costs, but that there are ways of supporting that labor and kind of supporting life the way that Moya, you're describing it um, mm -hmm. without having to basically like plug disabled people directly into industrial machines and be like, you're the batteries that are going to make this thing work better. Um, so it seems like maybe the internet is enabling a lot of different ways of thinking about disability and labor that designers should be thinking about as well. Absolutely. And not just exploiting, you know, I just, yeah. I've heard some stuff lately about how, um, you know, big insurance, you know, actuaries are trying to exploit autistic labor because, you know, the repetition and things, it's like, oh, this is the perfect kind of job for you because of this, you know, belief about autism. And I just, I, and it's billed as a diversity initiative, you know, like we are making uh, our workplace more accessible because we are employing these people who are particularly good at this particular thing. Uh, but again, it just sounds exactly like what you said, Amy, just plugging people in. Oh, we've got a perfect spot for you in the machine, in the industrial machine. You fit, you fit here perfectly. But it also pigeonholes people. What if you don't want to do that? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, <laughs> have options as to what their labor looks like, what their passion, you know, labor looks like. And if you just have just one category for people, then for those who don't fit that category, how does that make them feel? You know, everybody deserves options. I don't get why, you know, you know, when it comes to certain industries, they don't see that. Yeah, some people may want to do that particular thing, and that's wonderful. And that's wonderful that there's a path for people who want to do that particular thing, but you need to open the door for more opportunity so that everybody who desires to contribute something that's worthy for them can do so freely. 
Well, um, this was such a wonderful conversation. I'm so grateful to both of you for your time and for your engagement. And um, I'm looking forward to sharing this episode with our audience. I'm just glad to be able to meet the both of you and have this conversation. Uh, Monet, your work has been instrumental in my work. And so it's, you know, trying not to fangirl over here a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) But this has been probably one of the best interviews I've done. I really enjoyed um, talking with you both today. Absolutely. This has been a joy. Yes. You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Kevin Gotkin, Amy Hamrai, Cassandra Hartplay, Maggie Mang, Jara Mosh, and Leah Samples. Follow us on Twitter at Critical Design L and learn more about our projects at www.mapping-access.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The Contra podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.